Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your Hush country. Hush up, boy. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Boom, these explosions of bullshit. You're going to be the next president of the United States. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody, to the second issue of the Bipartisan Podcast on Grounds. Here at Bipartisan, while most people seem to be desperate to find compromise in political debates, we want to have hard conversations where we disagree productively. We want to get to the heart of the matters we're discussing, to make good arguments and even better counterarguments, and to learn and to learn a little something about ourselves and each other. I'm Alex Friedlander. And I'm Kristen O'Donohue. And today we bring you a very special episode First and, for, first and foremost, because it's Halloween, one of my favorite holidays of the year. Um, happy Halloween, Kristen. Happy Halloween, Alex. I love candy. I love dressing up, and I think this is a great time. One thing I don't love is the weather. I'm from New Orleans, as we all know. It Just is like generally doesn't like the weather. Oh, cold weather, cold weather. Pardon me. It is 45, cloudy, gray, boring, spooky. I'll give it that, but I'm not a fan. I went on a run this morning. I almost froze my living flesh off in this frigid <laughs> tundra of 45 degrees. I know Kristen from New York agrees with me. Yeah, I actually do. I also ran this morning and was frozen. But nonetheless, we're here surviving the climate and bringing you the content that you, the viewer, needs to hear. So before we get into the more political and serious part of our episode, I want to talk about Halloween. Kristen, what were your costumes this year? Um, I think my best one, I had one lazy one. I was a hippie because I have the glasses for it. Um, I was Medusa at one point. That was pretty good. People complained that they couldn't really tell that the things in my hair were snakes. Did you manage um, to turn anybody to stone? Just a couple people. We don't have to get into it. They're hiding. For legal somewhere. purposes, we are kidding. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Alex? Um, so first off, I was an astronaut. Very basic, very boring college costume. Then I was a carrot. Very different. Uh, most people go with the banana. Very different. Most people go with the banana if they're looking for some sort of food-related Halloween costume. Or a hot dog. I saw a lot of hot dogs. I saw an apple. That's pretty creative. But I'm different. I'm super quirky and funny and silly. And I was a carrot. Furthermore, I'm going to continue to interrogate you as this is one of my favorite holidays of the year. Two rapid-fire questions. Best costume you've seen and favorite Halloween candy? Um, best costume I've seen was a, a pair did Pulp Fiction and one of them had like a hat with oranges and um, that was funny to me. And then the other one was dressed as like a librarian carrying around their books. I loved that. Um, favorite Halloween candy, I love Reese's. Um, but my little sister has this theory that like any good snack has to have like an mmm, a crunch, and a nom. So it has to have like something smooth. I think Twix does that well. I see. A good crunch, a good nom. Nice disparity yeah. of texture. What about you, Alex? I would say, oh, the best Halloween costume, I'd have to give it to one of my very good friends who spent way too much money and dressed as a very accurate Dark Knight costume, wow. Christian Bale. Um, loved Batman, loved superheroes, thought it was great. And my favorite Halloween candy is a Kit Kat, but 
dear God, if I ever meet somebody who doesn't like pull the individual chocolates apart and yeah, just takes a bite, like <laughs> that's a red flag. That that is beyond a red flag. Like that, I think that may be a crime. Uh, that may be a crime, like statutory. That's actually one of the stats that we're gonna go through is the number of Kit Kat chunk bites people have taken. <sighs> Whatever it is, if that number is above zero. It's too many. <laughs> Anyways, on that brilliant segue, viewers, thank you for cringing with us as we go along. We, last week, we talked about freedom of speech. First off, we got into the FIRE survey, which basically scores universities on how good they are at allowing students to speak freely, feel comfortable sharing their opinions. UVA did really well. We ranked sixth, good for us. And the major takeaway was that Students feel comfortable sharing ideas with professors, but not so much with other students. This gets into ideas of cancel culture, student pressure, having a strong liberal majority. Furthermore, we had an interview with Professor Gerard Alexander who gave us some really good points, highlighting the idea of a slippery slope of letting both sides control each other's rhetoric. And this idea that stuck with me personally of thinking the other side is so wrong for their opinion that there's something wrong with them morally, which I think has become a trend in modern day social media politics. And lastly, we finished talking about Abigail Schreer um, and her issue of transgender decisions with younger girls, a very controversial decision. She spoke at UVA. And yeah, lastly, for viewers, if you hear some sort of ambient noise in the background. It is not a ghost haunting us on Halloween. It is a vent blowing hot air due to the frozen tundra we are living in now. So do not be afraid. This episode is actually about the frozen tundra in Charlottesville. <laughs> so this week we're going to be asking another important question, which is do students feel safe on grounds? And just to preview the conversation we had with Dr. Williams, um, here's a clip that he shared with us, which we think uh, is incredibly profound and important for our listeners to hear. At the darkest points in time, that's when light shines the brightest. We can be light, not just to this community, not just to this state, but to this nation and this globe, if we seize the moment to really express to others that we are UVA strong. So today we're going to get into a couple of dimensions of the gun violence and student safety problem in Charlottesville and on, on grounds. So we'll discuss the many, many community alerts we receive, students' reactions to them. We'll talk about break-ins, ambassadors, and more. Alex, what has been your experience of student safety? Have you felt safe on grounds? Um, how has the course of your, of your university experience been? Yeah, I definitely would argue that I bring a pretty unique perspective onto this. As I mentioned before, I'm from New Orleans. For those unaware, we, I don't know, may as well be the crime capital of the world. It is horrifying, the statistics down there. The ideas of normalized crime, hearing that your friend's parents were robbed at gunpoint, all these terrifying things that get so normalized because they happen over and over again, were very profound in my upbringing. Um, from then, I go to the University of Virginia. I, I come in with the idea that we are in some sort of safe haven and that mm -hmm. it will not be nearly as bad as New Orleans crime rate, which admittedly, it probably is not. But as I've gone through the years, now being a third year, the crime rate seems to have been to be more prevalent. And 
more akin to what I was growing up with, that maybe because we receive constant alerts of what's going on anywhere near grounds, so the issues may be more apparent as they pop up on my phone as I read them on a Sunday morning. But nonetheless, I, as someone who you would think to be normalized by crime, am once again becoming more alarmed by it, by the frequency, and of course, by the tragedies that happened in the shooting last year. Yeah, I think I'm from New York. We've had our own problems with crime. Here at UVA, I'll share a few of the statistics that our researchers compiled from university police reports. So, 2022, we saw three murders, 17 incidents of rape, five robberies, 106 motor vehicle thefts, 18 burglaries, 38 aggravated assaults, and four hate crimes. I think the takeaway is that the university is not a safe haven by any means. Um, Charlottesville does suffer from gun violence problems, from other safety concerns. And our researchers also surveyed students to get a sense of how they're feeling. And from about 30 responses, which of course is not representative of the university as a whole, but is a pool of randomly selected students, in response to the question of whether or not they're satisfied with the university's response to crime on or near grounds, from a, on a scale of one to 10, with one being very unsatisfied and 10 being very satisfied, the average response was a five. So that's sort of where we're starting off from. And today we're gonna talk to Professor Brian Williams, who's a professor in the Batten School. And he's an incredibly impressive person. He's done really meaningful work across the nation. So, a professor in the Batten School of Public Policy who specializes in police and community relations. His research centers on issues related to demographic diversity, local law enforcement, and public safety. Professor Williams is the author of Citizen Perspectives on Community Policing, a case study in Athens, Georgia. He's been published in leading journals and has spoken at various gatherings centered around law enforcement and communities. Professor Williams' wide range of experiences in this field make him the ideal guest to provide insight to the issues experienced by Charlottesville and by the university. And he's joined by his research assistant, Zach Harris, who is a fourth year student studying public policy. So we'll have a lot to learn from them. Professor Williams, Zach, thank you guys so much for coming on to the Bipartisan Podcast. Just before we get going with more of the issue at hand over student safety, we always like to start off our interviews with more of a fun question. So first off, in the spirit of the day, pun intended, what is your favorite Halloween candy and why? Uh, Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. Anything Reese's, my favorite. Uh, the colors kind of match a little bit too, but the taste is just something else with a tall glass of milk. Oh, that's great. I was also going to say Reese's, so not as fun, but I don't know, tastes good. My favorite too. Oh, I'm different. I, I'm a Kit Kat fan. But, okay. you know, we need a little, little food diversity in the group, that's right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, thank you again for joining us. Uh, just to get started, can you tell us a little bit about the classes you teach, their goals, um, when they got started? I've been at UVA, it'll be six years in January. Um, before that, I was at the University of Georgia, uh, Vanderbilt University, and Florida State University. My background is in public administration, public management. So I'm really passionate about opportunities to co-create policies and programs and structures that co-produce public safety, public order, and community well-being. So I've taught uh, some classes around co-creation and co-production, being at the core. But the two I'm teaching this semester, one is uh, police community relations, problems and prospects. 
Uh, that's LPPS 3310. I teach that every fall. And a new course emerged post-November 13th of last year is the Wicked Problem of Gun Violence from Ideology to Action. Uh, that's a course that is unique. Um, I found it to be very, very rewarding. I hope uh, the students have as well. But that is a course where we have subdivided the class into three groups and each group has a site that they visited to really speak with those on the front lines but also those who are in power if you will in terms of elected officials uh, so washington dc baltimore maryland and richmond so in each of those site visits we've been fortunate to have like in richmond the mayor the city council president the police chief along with uh, they call violent interrupters or credible messengers and youth serving organizations uh, to be in community with us, to pour into us, to share the lessons they've learned. Similarly in DC, but at DC we were fortunate to work with the Georgetown Center for Community Innovations and Community Safety, hmm. uh, which KICKS, they call it Georgetown Law KICKS Center. And we were fortunate to have Liz Ryan, who is the administrator of the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, to meet with us and one of her top uh, staffers, Scott Pestridge, along with they have they're doing some unique stuff in, in DC where they embed these credible messengers within five hospitals that as soon as a shooting occurs they go in and they begin trying to kind of map out understandings if you will that might limit the likelihood of that person either getting shot again or retaliation. Hmm. Uh, Baltimore met with the Mayor's Office of Neighborhood Safety and Engagement along with that group violence unit, which is a part of the police department, and a couple of nonprofits who work in that space too. So we've learned a lot, what's worked, uh, some of the challenges that they face, and by the end of the semester, I think my students will be able to produce some, some valuable information that could be shared with not only Charlottesville, but other communities about lessons learned. Yeah, and what brought you to Charlottesville? And also, just... My job. Uh, oh. So, so that, that, that brought me to Charlottesville. But I've enjoyed being here, working in the Batten School. I guess our model is what leading from anywhere. Mm -hmm. But in the, with the Pig Lab, we believe in being able to do that by serving anyone from anywhere. So we try to kind of not only serve um, you know, municipal governments, county governments, feds, agencies, but also local communities too, mm -hmm. uh, nonprofits and vendors. Makes a lot of sense. Um, so in general, can you tell us about who has jurisdiction over Charlottesville and the university? In terms of jurisdiction, in terms of law enforcement? Yes. Both the city and uh, CPD as well as UPD. But it is like overlapping kind of jurisdiction okay. uh, with it. So you have some shared kind of, uh, like in all communities, there's some shared responsibilities, especially university communities. So we can go back to November 13th, 2022. Think about all the agencies that participated in making sure this, this place was safe not just city of Charlottesville Police Department, not just UPD, but also Abermar County and supporting agencies too. Uh, to process what they had to process took a lot of human capital. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so they really were able to draw upon supporting uh, uh, police departments, not only just within this county, but across Central Virginia and some state agencies too. And can you just give us a sense of the current crime landscape in Charlottesville? What are we dealing with? Um, we've noticed in reviewing university police reports, the annual reports from the past four years, that there's been a rise in certain types of crime. Um, what is your understanding of 
with the current landscape? Well, I'm not really one who really dives deep into those statistics like that. I'm much more of the work I do is about bridge building, co-creating policies and programs. But one of the things we do see is the uh, increase in just shots being fired, mm -hmm. right? Uh, which kind of leads to a strong fear of crime, especially uh, the fear of random crime. The crime typically is not as random as what we think. Uh, oftentimes when we, you may know who does harm to you. Proximity typically matters. But we do have like those mass casualty events where we see things happen like in Lewiston. That, that's kind of an outlier, but yet I think that, that does impact how we think about where we are in this particular moment. Yeah. Regardless of what takes place, I do see um, a need for us to really understand what's the problem behind the problem. And that's one of the kind of things we try to do within the PEG Lab, to really have these meaningful, intentional conversations that are dialogues and allow us to appreciate different lived experiences to better understand what might be some of the problems behind the problem that we see. I think that's a very interesting point, um, the idea of a problem behind a problem, because when us as students gets an email or a text message about shots fired, we never really know what it's about. To our knowledge, it could be shots fired at a student walking home from a party late night, or it could be something drug-related. And I think that's a very good point that most students don't think about. And at least when I read those emails, I think, oh no, it must be at a student, like this must involve me. But the fact of the matter is, it could be for a variety of things. Charlottesville is a diverse community of more than just the university, and crime impacts more than just university students. Yeah, that, that is one of the things about it. You, the information is, is like ongoing, right? But at that point in time, you get some information, you share that information, but over time, the picture becomes a little clearer. But uh, how do they balance that? I'm not really sure. Uh, that might be something that hopefully you guys might invite uh, Chief Longo, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. UPD, yeah. Chief Cautious, Chief Reeves, to kind of talk about you know how they look at what's taking place and why they do what they do and why they have to do what they do when they do it. But I do like getting those alerts because I think having some kind of information better than not knowing anything else. So I, I love this language of co-creation and bridge building and I wonder how we can work together um, with the state legislature and crafting legislation. You know, you teach at the public policy school, obviously, and um, one bill that a club that I run, a policy advocacy group called SERVE, Students for Equity and Reform in Virginia, worked on was uh, SB 1484, which would ban guns on college campuses. Um, that didn't pass. Was deeply devastating to us. We had about 1,500 signatures on a petition. And so there's that piece of the puzzle, getting legislators on board, and then there's also the community work that we're doing and violence interrupters. We have the Buck Squad here in Charlottesville, I know. And then academia, we go to the University of Virginia. It's, you know, we have resources to actually devote to solving this crisis. So how do we blend all of those different, um, those pieces of the puzzle? I think there's a way for us to kind of knit it together but making sure that every piece of our social fabric is represented. Mm -hmm. Their voices are heard, but also understood. And that will take a process. And maybe Zach can kind of talk about some of the processes yeah. that we, we, we do in terms of trying to bridge those gaps that mm -hmm. lead to better understanding and then hopefully some kind of collective action as corrective action. But it's a long process. Um, there are reasons why people view uh, you know, the world the way they do what makes sense to them. That's their lived experiences. 
All of our lived experiences are unique, but how do we value the lived experiences of others that might challenge our own lived experiences? I think that's the great opportunity we have in a community like Charlottesville in a state like Virginia. I really believe we could lead the nation if we could kind of convene, right? All partners kind of convene to begin the process of trying to be better at communicating with one another. The deep listening, trying to seek to understand uh, the perspectives of others, and hopefully where well, they can understand our perspectives. And I think that will lead to maybe some cooperation, coordination, collaboration, and ultimately some collective action. Uh, but maybe Zach might want to kind of talk about. Yeah, the first thing that came to my mind with your question was the opportunity for venues, for people to convene and actually like discuss the policies, not just in how they are spelled out in the law, but also like how their lived experiences shape their perception of the laws. Um, one thing that I've learned from the Patent School and from the PEG Lab in particular is that how a law is written and how policies are described like objectively is kind of deviates a lot and deviates in a lot of varied ways in how different communities will perceive them regardless of the physical or like objective impact. So I think that if there are opportunities for people to come into or confront different perspectives on the policies that exist, uh, I think that presents a greater opportunity for lawmakers and policymakers to go back to the drawing board when they're trying to pass new policies and incorporate what they've seen and the perspectives that they're gaining. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the university or universities in general are great like opportunities to host those venues and to be of use in representing representing a diverse yeah. set of voices. So, yeah. You know, Zach, um, I wish I could frame that in a gold painting right above this plaque by Pawson, because <laughs> that is more or less exactly what we stand for. Um, that was perfectly said, the idea that in order to make progress, we need to sit in front of the person we disagree with and have a conversation. Um, like I said, I think that's beautiful. Um, it's really the solution that we've identified, why we have Kristen and I with diverse views talking about things, why we have differing guests come on the show. Um, and the idea that it applies to legislation as well is very profound and I completely agree. And then to change course a little bit, um, we wanted to talk about what the university has done since the shooting last November. Um, I know personally we've done some research, but a lot of students seem to be more or less in the dark on what like precisely the university has done to increase safety since the shooting. And I was wondering if you guys could talk a little bit about what they've done. I can't really speak on behalf of the university, but I can speak on behalf of the PEG lab. The lab is all about engagement and governance, public engagement and governance, looking, listening, and learning. So, of course, I'm observing things that are taking place, but I'll speak on what the PEG lab has done. What we've tried to do is really to kind of center some of the issues that um, manifest itself in violence, conflict. So um, before, three weeks before the shooting, the PEG Lab hosted the Mental Health Crisis Public Awareness Campaign on grounds and at Montpelier. Brought in public health uh, professionals, mental health professionals from across the U.S. to kind of really speak to um, what uh, we had a sense of what was occurring post-COVID. We tried to package it with the rollout of 988 
which replaces 911. That was launched last September. That is the mental health crisis hotline. But right now, we're still ramping up across the U.S. the infrastructure needed to make it fully operational, like 911 was. Mm -hmm. So the public awareness campaign was just to alert people of, if someone's in crisis, here's a number that you call. It's not necessarily a police response, yeah. but much more of a mental health response. So that was leading up. Post the shooting, uh, we hosted some events to kind of really try to hear from tweens and teens, really get a sense of, okay, what might be some of the issues that they are facing? So we hosted, uh, ended up culminating in the bullying, belonging, gun violence, and safety uh, event on June 4th. Hmm. That's National Gun Prevention Month, National yeah. Violence Prevention Month, where we brought kids in from Charlottesville, Albemarle County, and Richmond who had prepared essays and uh, talking about solutions to the problem behind those problems, which was fascinating. Partnered with Mount Zion First African Baptist Church here in Charlottesville, support from both police foundations, the Charlottesville Police Foundation, Avermaugh County Police Foundation. We had elected officials locally, statewide, uh, representatives from uh, elected officials statewide, and I think Senator Warner's office wrote letters to each of our winners uh, wow. and had a staffer there to present and read those letters. So those are some of the things the PEG Lab has done. And we've done some other things, not just in Charlottesville, but also in other parts of Virginia. So we partnered, this might have been in March, with ODU's athletic department, utilizing those student athletes at ODU, their platform to really kind of amplify the message that it's okay not to be okay targeting tweens and teens in the 757 area. Got support from Norfolk State. Children's Hospital, Kings Dominion, mm -hmm. uh, tremendous support there. And all of that is flowing into Central Virginia Listening and Learning Exchange. The theme this year is bridging differences, building solutions, uniting Central Virginia for conflict resolution and violence reduction. And we're targeting each demographic. So we have things for tweens and teens and everyone on but we're also leveraging the platform of student athletes and student leaders here at UVA to do so. Hmm. Students like Zach and others in my lab, students in both of my classes, but also some of the student athletes who play for UVA hmm. to, to be present, uh, to kind of share with those kids who will participate, you know, some strategies on how best to kind of deal with conflict, how best to lessen the likelihood of violence. So we're hoping that will be a, a very successful venture. But it's a great idea. When are the dates? So, oh, sorry, Dad, so go ahead. Uh, well, to answer your question, the dates are November 10th through 13th. Okay. Um, but just to kind of like back up a little bit, uh, over the past year, or since my time in the lab, uh, we've focused a lot on mental health policies. And our goal is to create spaces for collaborative policymaking. Um, and the, event, the policy area that we've chosen to focus on a lot has been like, uh, mental health and the factors that lead to mental health crises and how that creates unfavorable interactions with law enforcement. Mm -hmm. um, so that's led to, as Dr. Williams mentioned, like uh, events at UVA and outside of UVA um, to gather together lawmakers, uh, business leaders, community members on discussions on mental health resources. Um, but then to also answer your original question, from my understanding, uh, the University of Virginia, since the shooting, has expanded the uh, ambassador presence. Um, mm -hmm. to bring ambassadors further off grounds and into the Charlottesville community. That has a lot of implications for not just like physical safety, but also 
perception, student perception of safety, um, as well as like interactions with the community that yeah. I kind of can see that you might want to discuss more. But that is, from my understanding, the biggest tangible step that the university has taken. Okay. Yeah, just before we get into that, because I'm sure Christian will want to ask about that, the ambassador situation, I really like the idea of preventative measures to like tragedies such as like a mass shooting or anything of the like. I think with how media works today, everybody hears of a shooting and everybody thinks, how do we protect it from happening when it's happening? But this idea of targeting somebody's mental health and seeing in like a very deterministic point of view, what led them to that state of mind is a really great way to mitigate those type of problems because without that, um, then we're just trying to like post event minimize damage. But with y'all's idea, we are acting like preventatively, which I really like. One of the things that was a major takeaway from the Baltimore site visit for that class, the wicked problem of gun violence, was the intentional efforts to prevent. Partnering with ROCA, R-O-C-A, they are relentless in trying to address uh, and prevent the likelihood of gun violence. I'm sorry, what does ROCA stand for? It's a nonprofit that okay. started in Boston, but ROCA, I don't know, it's not an acronym, oh, okay. um, but, but it, it works with, in Baltimore, African-American males 15 to 24, who've been identified as being the most likely to either be shot or to pull the trigger. They've been shot. Some of the, 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 the they have that lived experience. But they utilize those credible messengers who understand that lived experience because they have lived it previously. But they are relentless in trying to prevent. And probably the, the most powerful story one of the speakers shared with us was on the 89th visit, the door finally opened. Wow. 89th. That's how relentless they are in terms of making sure that we value you as a person. If it takes me 89 tries before you're willing to at least open the door and have a conversation with me about how I can keep you safe, uh, that's what I love. Yeah. Uh, because that, that is the kind of really trying to prevent those things from happening. But they take that root cause analysis too with broken and in Baltimore. So there's issues with housing, they get relocated. Employment, they get trained, right? Health, get taken care of. Food insecurity, the whole shebang. Uh, they are intentional, and that is because of, I think, the generosity of some philanthropists in Baltimore, but also some investment from not only the state government, but also from the city of Baltimore. There's some things you can do to prevent. Our lab, we kind of talk about how can we be proactive in a coactive way instead of being reactive, which is getting to your question, and that's what we really try to facilitate. How can we come together to be mm -hmm. proactive in a coactive way? power with instead of power over, instead of reacting to once that bullet has left the chamber, it's out and it can do a lot of damage. Yeah, and the power with idea I think yeah. is key. Uh, you've had so many experiences in many different cities and parts of this country and I'm sure you've observed the tense relationship that some communities have with their local law enforcement and having a separate hotline that people can reach out to when it comes to mental health crises or other types of crises that maybe don't require a police response, I think that's a huge step forward in sort of keeping police in, you know, not in place, but in responding to crises that they can actually productively respond to. What are other ways to repair relationships between communities and police and make people feel better served 
um, and also make police feel like their work is valuable because some cities are experiencing a shortage of police officers and um, they're feeling disincentivized, I think. Yeah, many are feeling that, that shortage. So we look at the numbers, they're down across the board, typically for all agencies. But I think to really address it is to begin, uh, you know, we got to start where we are, right? And where we are right now is, um, even though I, I haven't looked at the numbers yet, but something came out either this morning or yesterday or last night about a bump in public confidence and trust in policing as an institution in the U.S., I think Gallup. Um, so that's a positive sign. But the reality of it is uh, how do we take advantage of the opportunity to alert the public that this vocation has changed? And I think I love the power of origin stories, especially when you have an appreciation for police departments. They don't set policy. They just implement and when we look at our history in the U.S., those functional actors had to do certain things that we look back on and say, how dare they, how did they do that? Well, they were executing the law. So how do we make sure that the public understands like, hey, uh, yep, that was bad, but that's what they were charged to do, right? Mm -hmm. To kind of clarify like, okay, that, that's our, our dark past, but also to highlight the progress that's been made. And that's one of the things I do, I see a lot of progress being made. Now, we still have a long ways to go with it. But I think police departments are much more intentional now in terms of trying to uh, really better serve all within our communities. But there are some unique challenges because there will be some hurdles they have to overcome that the current officers did not create. They didn't create it. But they are charged with kind of addressing. But in all honesty, it's a shared responsibility. Public safety, public order, community well-being is a shared responsibility. It's just not on them, it's on all of us. And I think that's the opportunity we have in terms of doing what we need to do. I think also, adding on to that a little bit, uh, a part of it could be our perception of the role that police play in the community. I think the term police has kind of become like shorthand for just safety. Um, but there's so many different ways and like facets that public safety manifests and police officers aren't necessarily trained to like handle things like a mental health crisis. Um, but that's currently, they're the people who are called in to address those types of tasks. So I think if we had the resources or if we started investing the resources into creating new avenues of service in the public safety realm and have uh, like social workers who are capable of going into the community uh, and addressing things like mental health crises. That kind of takes the burden off of police in the country and they don't have to send people who are perhaps less qualified or less trained to handle those types of issues. And when you have like a, a more case specific approach, when you have police who are more doing the tasks that they're trained to do yeah. and that they wanted to do when they joined the police force, I think that creates a much more capable, a much more efficient system that will like build trust. I think those are all really good points. Um, and I just, it looks like we have time for about one more question. I wanted to tie us back into the issue on grounds. Um, and you mentioned this point earlier and I definitely wanted to get to it. I was wondering if we could talk a bit more about the ambassadors. I know we talked about there was an increase in them since the shooting. Um, after doing some surveying, we found that students, particularly first years, are less clear on their role and what they can do to, or how they can utilize them as a resource. Could you guys expand a bit on the role of the ambassador and how they help with student safety in general? Um, yeah, I can try to. Uh, to be perfectly honest, like as a student, I'm 
a little bit unclear on like their exact purpose. But from what I understand, they are essentially like crisis responders. Um, so I don't think we the university has them stationed throughout like I believe wherever like the student population is in, in the Charlottesville community. Um, and their job is to essentially like if they see something to like report it and to have like someone who is there to respond to anything that might occur. But it does create, it, it's an interesting position to be in because first of all you have students who might think that like ambassadors are there to like call people out or to like report people for things like maybe like drinking or like drug use or something like that. But I don't, that is not like their actual yeah. purpose. Um, so that right away kind of creates a level of like distrust and like tension between students and the ambassadors. And then also there's the fact that with an increased ambassador presence, uh, UVA is in turn increasing its presence within the Charlottesville community, which is something that over the years has created a lot of tension between students and Charlottesville residents. It's a way of the university like having more oversight and having uh, like a greater presence in the safety of its students, but at the same time it, it creates like a lot of interactions that might lead to less favorable outcomes. I don't know if you want to speak to it. Well, I think it's just an opportunity, right, to bring some clarity to it. So um, I can envision what, SGA, Student Government Association, maybe inviting the ambassadors to kind of talk about what's your reason for being. Yeah. To clarify some of the things because, um, you know, every challenge presents an opportunity for us to kind of really better understand uh, what's taking place. Uh, I have a son who's a second year. Hmm. My daughter graduated from law school here, so I'm a parent as well as a faculty member. Okay. So I like seeing their presence, and I see that presence benefiting not just students, faculty, and staff, but others who might visit the spaces that we're in. But I have been intentional in trying to understand. Uh, the, the law enforcement community, their mm -hmm. reasons for being, their services uh, that they provide. But I think it's an opportunity to kind of, uh, to kind of erase some of those questions that people have, answer the questions people may, may have. That could be just maybe Student Government Association meeting with ambassadors and Chief Longo. Yeah, that's I think idea. that'll be a, a pretty informative and uh, as a parent, that'll make me feel great like maybe you, yeah. your parents would as well. So. Yeah, I think they would. Thank you both so much. I think we're out of time, but we so appreciate you coming on and sharing your insights and also for the work you're doing here. I think it's incredibly important and we appreciate it as students. Yeah, thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was a really good discussion we had with Professor Williams and Zach. The first thing I wanted to touch on is the fact that it seemed Zach, despite his involvement with all this, similar to us, has very little or very skewed idea of what ambassadors do. <laughs> what do you make of that? Um, it's a little troubling. I think I understand why their presence could be helpful. They're not law enforcement, so they don't have the power to, or the jurisdiction to actually use force or respond in a meaningful way. But just, you know, Professor Williams said that as a parent, it means something to him to have their presence on grounds and beyond grounds. Um, as just like a sign that the university is responding, but it's not exactly inspiring to see 80 year old men with canes and their yellow vests. And I, I don't necessarily look to them and think, ah, if I'm in trouble, that's the guy. That's the guy who's gonna do the job. Yeah, I agree with that. And furthermore, I, I believe it was Zach who brought up the point that students are unclear if they are the type of people to report them for alcohol usage or mm -hmm. drug usage. 
And I think that's a major aspect that should be clarified early in people's UVA career that they shouldn't fear the ambassadors. They should see them as a resource yeah. uh, to help them if they're in need. I completely agree. I know there's one absolutely jacked ambassador. So he that's makes, true. He makes me feel safe. But I mean, so, some of them are definitely questionable in their mobility. But I think in general, just having somebody in a bright colored shirt somewhat deters crime because it makes people feel seen and makes them less yeah. likely. But I mean, I don't have data to back this up. That's just what I feel could be the case. But definitely would like to see some further clarification and perhaps improvement in the program. Yeah, agreed. I think students would benefit from understanding who these people are quite literally and where they came from, how they got to be ambassadors, what their purpose is. So Professor Williams' idea of having student government sponsor some sort of conversation, I think, could be useful. Something else we didn't talk about a ton was the community alert system. And, you know, we could have Chief Longo on at some point, perhaps, to discuss this further, but what's been your experience with community alerts? Well, this is a great subject, and I'm going to bring up the behind-the-scenes conversation you and I had, where you revealed that you don't get text alerts for community alerts. Yeah, which my Gmail. I think is absolutely insane, personally, that there could be a shooting, and the only way some people hear about it is through their email. I know you said you have email alerts, which is great for you. I think there's a difference between, there's the UVA alert, and like when the shooting was happening, I did receive text alerts. But when we get like a standard community alert from Tim Longo because someone's broken into a house again, I get those on email exclusively. Yeah, which definitely the shooting comes at with more danger, but if somebody's breaking into a house, oh, you, yeah, I'd you, like could, to know. Yeah. you could be the apartment next door and have no idea. I think undoubtedly that UVA should transition that system to email and text rather than putting it the pressure on the students to do the research to figure out how to get automated messages because kids don't check their emails much. I think that's mm -hmm. fair to say. And a text message is much more prevalent, especially oftentimes we get alerts on weekends when we're out yeah. and some people may not be in the right state of mind for one reason or another. And a text message is much more direct than receiving an email. Yeah. Furthermore, this provides a great transition to something else I wanted to touch on. Are students desensitized to all these alerts of crime and robbery and whatnot? I think yes, many students are. I think it's important that we receive community alerts. I appreciate knowing what's going on, but I've been in many situations where I've been with a group of people. We've all received an alert at the same time. It's incredibly alarming. I'll bring up one from February 17th, last school year. We got a notification that two RUNC employees had an altercation and one lifted up their shirt revealing a handgun in their waistband. And we got an alert about this I was kind of I was freaking out a little. I was like, oh my gosh, we were just at Runk earlier today. Like, that's scary stuff. And my friends kind of shrugged it off and moved on. And I thought there was something really troubling about that because to some extent, I think students feel like, well, what am I going to do? I just have to go on with my life or I'm going to constantly, what am I going to be paralyzed with fear? But at the same time, if we don't come to terms with the situation that we're dealing with on grounds and off grounds, um, the rise in, in crime rates and gun violence, it's, it's really concerning. And I can imagine that 
the community alerts traumatize students who remember their experience of the shooting and have been in other violent situations. So that concerns me. Yeah, it's a sort of paradoxical effect where you would expect when there is more crime going on, that would make somebody think that it is more likely for crime to happen to them. Thus, they become more scared. But actually what happens is the more crime that is exposed to the UVA community through alerts, the less people care because it becomes more normal. I remember my first year, I'm currently a third year, so two years ago, when I'd say crime seemed much less rampant. We'd receive an alert and I would be in the safety of my locked dorm and a locked door and the alert would happen miles away and everybody on my hall would be sort of freaked out because mm -hmm. UVA seemed as some sort of safe haven from crime mm -hmm. where, especially for me being from New Orleans, it was the space where I felt very safe. I felt I could walk home at night, which is something I could never feel back home. Mm -hmm. But now as the sort of the frequency has increased, people are less scared, which I think is a very interesting phenomenon. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I think, I mean, Professor Williams talked about so many elements of this really complicated puzzle of safety and, and gun violence. And one key component, I think, is our legislation. And in the state of Virginia, our gun control laws are not as strict as they could be. And students demonstrated support for stricter gun laws last year, actually. Um, I mentioned this in the episode, but Students for Equity and Reform launched a campaign to pass a law that would get guns off grounds. And the reason we were so surprised that that didn't pass the legislature is because most people thought that it was illegal to carry a gun on grounds. How could you think? Yeah, I did, as you're saying this. The only reason it wasn't already law was because the legislature failed to carve out an exception for VMI, Virginia Military Institute. Of course they have to carry weapons. Um, does not have to be the case at UVA. And I think that bill getting passed would make a world of difference. But of course, there are so many other different pieces of legislation that need to need to pair it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, no, I'm no congressman. I'm not going to pretend to be some sort of wizard in knowing about all about how congressional proceedings work. But it seems to me that it wouldn't be terribly difficult to pass sort of some sort of straightforward gun legislature with a simple accept clause where a military institute may have yeah. guns for obvious reasons. It seems that with so many disastrous events, legislature is quick to act, whether it's a natural disaster, there is funds quickly allocated to helping the victims mm -hmm. and whatnot. But time after time with gun violence, we see legislature, I can't even say slow, like there's just, yeah. there's no change in Stop policy. It. And nobody's, or many people do know that lobbyists, the NRA, all these brilliant issues that stand in the way, but it's so interesting that still to this day where now on a college campus, you may not feel safe. Nonetheless, Congress has done essentially nothing to help us feel better. Yeah, that's true. Well, I think that's all we had time for. This was great. Thank you so much to everyone who worked tirelessly on this episode. As always, thank you to our pro producers, Will and Henry, who make this show possible. Our researchers, Justin and Bertie, went out in the field for this episode, collecting reports from students, reading the university police reports. Um, they made our job much easier. And 
um, to our listeners. We hope you learned something and we'll be back next week. Yeah. Thank you guys. And hopefully we can finish on a bit more of a positive note, but uh, not everything is sunshine and rainbows in this world, but maybe it is when you listen to our podcast. So wow. thank you guys. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your Hush country. Hush up, boy. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Boom, these explosions of bullshit. You're going to be the next president of the United States. <laughs>